this month I have chosen to bring you three messages from the book of 1 Timothy, all pertaining to the life of the church, as 1 Timothy is an epistle addressed to that explicit issue, being a pastoral epistle. And we've looked at the conduct of the church, and we've looked at leaders of the church, and this Lord's Day morning we'll be looking at the finances of the church. But first in our reading of God's Word, we turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Malachi, chapter 3, where I'd like to read verses 7 to 12. Malachi, the third chapter, beginning at verse 7. Hear now God's word. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith Jehovah of hosts. But you say, Wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet ye rob me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with the curse, for you rob me, even this whole nation. Bring ye the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And prove me now herewith, saith Jehovah of hosts, if I will not open you the window of heaven and pour out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast its fruit before the time in the field, saith Jehovah of hosts. And all nations shall call you happy, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith Jehovah of hosts. And in the New Testament, Paul's first epistle to Timothy Chapter 6, beginning the reading at the 6th verse. First Timothy 6, 6. Here again God's word. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, for neither can we carry anything out. But having food and covering we shall be therewith content. But they that are minded to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare and many foolish and hurtful lusts, such as drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, which some reaching after have been led astray from the faith and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And then continuing at the 17th verse, charge them that are rich in this present world that they be not high-minded, nor have their hopes set on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, and that they be rich in good works, that they be ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on the life which is life indeed. And thus far the reading of God's word.
Well, as I said in my introductory remarks, I've been preaching on matters pertaining to the church, its conduct, its leadership, and now today finances, uh, preaching from 1 Timothy. Uh, And it's always an awkward matter to preach on finances. It, It is for me, and I've come to the place where I see that that's a failure in my own life, in my own attitude. It's a failure of my own nerve. Uh, to be faithful to the whole counsel of God and to say what needs to be said to you as the people of God. Uh, But I have to confess that at the beginning, and and I would confess that for myself. I'd confess that for Pastor Curto. We don't find it easy to talk about finances to our congregation because, after all, the people that appear outwardly anyway to directly uh, benefit from the financial givings of God's people are the pastors. And so it might seem that we're preaching about our own circumstance. It's all the more awkward to preach on that this year, uh, this year. This week, I got a new car. People might think, well, now we're going to have to finance the pastor's new car, so we're going to hear about that. That that isn't true, but, uh, you know, the awkwardness is there. We have to admit that. If we're going to ever get rid of that elephant that's sitting in the front room, we're going to have to admit there is an elephant there and, and then try to get around it. I'll tell you how awkward it is. Uh, I'm counseling someone outside of this congregation, and um, uh, this individual would appear to be looking for a new church, and so I invited this person to to visit our church. Now, the counseling was taking place this last week, and you know, I no sooner said, well, why don't you visit our congregation? We'd love to see you. And I said, but don't come this week. (laughs) I did. And you know why I said that? Because I remembered I'm going to be preaching on money. And, and then I said that. I had to confess that I said, the reason I said that is because I'm going to be preaching on finances this week. And I feel awkward about that. You know, when visitors come in our own congregation, it isn't the only reason, but one reason why we collect offerings the way we do is that we don't like the fact that the Christian church is gained to itself, sadly, in a, in a deserved way, has gained to itself a reputation for pleading for money all the time. And so, as you know, when you give your tithes and offerings, you give them quietly and silently and somewhat secretly before the Lord at an offering box at the back of our auditorium. We don't make a point of of, uh, filing down the rows and collecting from you. We don't want people to think that we exist for the sake of building a financial empire, that we're here just to collect funds in the name of religion. The church's sad reputation has almost always been that, in America anyway, of asking for money. Uh, The TV scandals, uh, uh, greedy evangelists have hurt us uh, greatly as the people of God. Um, You know, I have nothing to do with those individuals. Nothing. I don't share their theology. I don't share their methods. I don't know them personally. I don't benefit from their ministries. I don't particularly like their ministries. I have nothing to do, and yet I bear the onus of what they have done. Not with you, I mean, you all know better than that, and you know me, but the fact is, when I talk to people outside our congregation, you know, people want to talk about religious things. That's what comes to their mind, those greedy TV evangelists. That's happened three times to me this last month alone. It just keeps happening. And so, you understand why we feel awkward about it? But you see, the danger is that we'll tone down the Word of God because we feel awkward. And it's interesting, that's what we condemn in others, isn't it? We condemn others for toning down the Word of God because of the awkwardness of the message. 
How often have I felt really badly that there are people who probably do believe in predestination, but they never preach a sermon on it for fear that their congregation would be turned against them. People who probably do believe that there's some hard things, some disciplinary things that ought to be said in the church and about the church, but won't say it because they know that their congregation uh, is going to be turned off by it. There are people who will not come to difficult theological conclusions because they know the social awkwardness of doing so. And so who am I then to condemn such people when I have to stand in the pulpit and confess to you, I don't like to talk about money because it, it'd be easier for me just to avoid it, wouldn't it? You know, and then you, I, I think, you know, I'm thinking wrongly, but I think well, then people wouldn't think poorly. You wouldn't give them any reason to suspect that you're really talking about, uh, you know, increasing your own salary or something like that. But you see, the Word of God speaks so directly and so explicitly about this that when Paul comes to the end of his epistle, mind you, and he's built up all the way along, and at the very end, you know, where you think he might say something really religious, really pious, and so forth, the last thing he has to say, well, apart from dealing with the Gnostics, the very last thing's intellectual, verse 20, but he says, charge them that are rich in this present world. Now, he's saying this to Timothy. The Apostle Paul is saying to the pastor, you have an obligation to lay a charge upon the people in your congregation that are wealthy. But Paul, don't you understand, we're going to get a bad reputation if we do that sort of thing. I don't think Paul would care much about getting a bad reputation. If you know anything about the history of the Apostle Paul, he didn't usually give in to that kind of consideration. If he did, he still would have been a Pharisee of Pharisees, wouldn't he? It's very appropriate today that I speak on the subject of uh, tithes and offerings. Um, I think most of you know who have been around for a while that I do this once a year. Um, you know, whether we need it or not. No, we do it once a year because we do need it. And it's appropriate that we do that today because today we're having our yearly congregational meeting. But I think there's an even more and maybe a special appropriateness about speaking on this subject to this congregation at this particular time. Because last evening we just enjoyed the celebration of 10 years as a congregation the Lord Jesus Christ, celebrating 10 years of what God has done by his grace and through the power of his spirit in our midst. It's appropriate to speak about this because our congregation has enjoyed and has thanked God for the fact that we've been placed in a position to expand our outreach and to expand our ministry in what really is going to be an explosively powerful way. Uh, if you were there last night, you remember what Mike had to say in the little chart he passed out. Just look at the various areas of growth, not just financial. I mean, there's, there's some humor in that. Uh, that one's there, too. But look at the growth in just in terms of uh, the size of our congregation. Um, we rented uh, our lease to this particular location. As you can see, it's not going to be long. We're not going to be able to stay here. God is helping us to grow, and we're not particularly working on outreach programs. Have you noticed that? We haven't done a lot of advertising. It's not like we're on a growth campaign. God's just doing this with us, and I praise him for that. We're growing. The amount of counseling that's being done just... Uh, Ask your two pastors and the elders that help them. We're doing a lot more counseling these days. Uh, check with our secretary. 
after this week particularly, see how busy uh, she has to be just to keep things organized administratively around here. Look at our tape ministry, how it's grown and grown and grown. 6,000 tapes or so over the last uh, five or six years. The speaking engagements and opportunities. Uh, Pastor Curto again having an opportunity to go to South Africa to expand the ministry of this congregation. Uh, the training in theology that's beginning to take place. The, um, we hope, the seed of a theological school someday. Or the publications. Uh, the books that are possible that your pastors write. And antithesis, what God is doing through that publication. And, of course, the Christian school ministry. You look at all these things that God is doing, and then look at the size of this congregation. What a blessing. And you see, it's so appropriate, then, to address you today on the subject of finances, because you see, all that which we've talked about, we'd like to believe is maybe an upper-story religious experience. But you see, it all takes place in the here and now, down below here, where money is necessary. Counseling people cost money. Publications cost money. Running schools cost money. Leasing buildings cost money. We can't get away from that. Money is part of life. And if we're going to minister and to do these sorts of things, it's going to cost something. So how can a ministry of a growing church be financed? How is it possible that a small congregation has an influence and kind of a, uh, an energy output that is really disproportionate to its size. I'm really proud of our congregation. I think in a godly sense, righteously so. When individuals hear of the various things we're doing, they say, well, how big is your congregation? And I tell them, and they say, what? I mean, they're, they're thinking, you know, we're talking about a congregation that's one of these mega churches of Orange County. We're not. We're talking about a little family church. So God bless you for that. You deserve to hear that blessing. But how has it been possible? And I want to suggest in earthly terms, obviously the Spirit of God's got to bless everything we do. You heard me say that last night. In earthly terms, the only way the energy output and ministry of this congregation has been made possible is through the tithes and offerings of God's people. I'd like to tell you that uh, Pastor Curto and myself are, are so pious and so dedicated to the cause that we'd be here doing it even if we couldn't feed our families. But I doubt that that's true. Maybe it is. I'll let Tony speak for himself. But I wouldn't be able to do that. The fact of the matter is none of what takes place in this congregation takes place without some kind of cash backing, some foundation. So how is it possible that the ministry of the church can be financed? How can it grow? Through tithes and generosity. In Malachi, the third chapter, often when pastors preach on that, I notice they stop short the reading. Sometimes they'll read down to the place where God says, if you will faithfully give your tithes, I'll open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, such a blessing that you won't have room to take it in. Wouldn't that be great? Your storehouses will not be large enough to receive what I'm going to do in your midst. If you'll just show faithfulness that you trust me and 10% of what you receive, you give back to me as just a token offering, an indication that it came from my hand. God says, I'm going to prosper you amazingly. Now, pastors will sometimes preach on that, but if you go on, God says, I will also protect you from the devourer. 
And then finally, the third blessing that is promised there, which I don't know if I ever heard a sermon on, but it's interesting. Malachi 3.12 says, And all nations shall call you happy. You will be so blessed of God that you will be blessed by the nations as well. They will look at what God has done with his people and call you happy. Because God has favored you in your faithfulness to the tithe. God has favored you because you've been faithful in tithing. Now, there are other blessings promised by God in the Bible. I don't want to reduce everything to this. But in this particular text, the fact of the matter is that all the nations will see God's people and call them blessed specifically because God has favored them in their tithing. What a message. You want to have the light of the gospel go out? Tithe. You want to see God's people prosper in this world? Tithe. So this is what Malachi the prophet says. But now tithes and offerings are not meritorious. You have to understand this. You can't buy off God. God's not saying, give me some money, kind of like a greedy evangelist, and then I'll do something for you. Tithes and offerings are not meritorious. They carry no merit. There's, we don't get brownie points before God because we tithe or because we give offerings over and above our tithes. The reason why God blesses us in our tithing is not a tit-for-tat commercial arrangement. God blesses us in our tithing because tithing is an index of our gratitude and tithing is an index of where our hearts are. And when we tithe, what we are saying in the most practical, concrete way is, my heart is with you, Lord, and I do trust you, and I believe you that you will take care of me, even if I don't see how the bills will be paid, if I pay right off the top 10% of my income to you. It's not a commercial transaction. It's a way in which God tests whether we love him. You know, Because where a man's heart is, there is his treasure also. And Malachi, even before Jesus spoke those words, understood it as a prophet of God. When we tithe to the Lord, we stop robbing from him and we show that we really are depending upon him, and that we love him, and that we are grateful to him. And so the church's ability to grow and the church's ability to expand its ministry is tied really to the hearts of its members tied to the hearts of its members, and those hearts show where they are by our tithing. Where the tithing is inconsistent and where the tithing is not upheld by all the members of the congregation, or where there are no offerings over and above the tithe, offerings of love, then things stand still in a congregation and we can't move ahead. In his epistle, to Timothy, the Apostle Paul spoke of this indexing feature of tithes. Tithes are an index of where our hearts are. Paul spoke of this indexing feature of tithes and offerings by delivering two short discourses that are pertinent to wealth. Remember, this is a pastoral epistle that Paul is writing. The message has a special bearing on church finances. Clearly, it has a, a broader and a universal application to money in general. But Paul's writing to a pastor to tell his congregation this about money. And that's what I want to tell you about this morning. Two brief messages. 
And you put them both together to be a brief sermon, I promise you. First of all, a message to those who wish to be wealthy, and secondly, a message to those who are. I guess that covers all of us, right? <laughs> we either want to be wealthy or we've pretty much attained wealth. Now, you have to remember that when I talk of wealth, or as my translation puts it, being rich in this present world, um, wealth is a relative concept. Uh, not many people in our congregation, there may be a few of you who do and should, even in the more secular sense, think of yourselves as wealthy. Uh, but most of us don't think of ourselves as wealthy individuals, but wealth is a relative concept. Uh, there are individuals, even in this small church, who relative to Southern California are indeed wealthy people. But relative to third world countries, all of us in this congregation are wealthy people. Okay, so you understand what I'm getting at? Wealth is, is a relative sort of thing. And in a minute you'll see that there are those who are not wealthy and you'll see why they aren't. And then there are people that are. And I think all of us are. And then there are some of us who are even more wealthy than others. be true enough. But now let's talk about this. First, the message to those who wish to become wealthy. We see this in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 6 in 1 Timothy. Paul has been talking about false teachers. In verse 3, if any man teaches a different doctrine, doesn't consent to sound or healthy words, Paul has some very hard things to say about that individual. But notice what these false teachers are saying. And you tell me if you can see any application to um, the late 20th century Christian church. At the very end of verse 5, supposing these false teachers, supposing that godliness is a way of gain. Have you ever heard someone say, you see, the reason you become a Christian is because then you can name it and claim it. You get anything you want. God doesn't want his people to be poor. God doesn't want his people to be sick. God doesn't want his people to suffer or be oppressed. And so if that's happening, there's something wrong with you. You're not really trusting the Lord. And if you want a Cadillac, God's going to give you a Cadillac. There was a time um, a few years ago when I heard that sort of thing, and I thought, this is really the bizarre, you know, peripheral extreme. But then I began to realize there is more and more. It's not all of the same character. It's not all the same storyline, to be sure. But there are a lot of ministries well-known ministries, well-publicized ministries, where this is the bottom line. Godliness is really a great way to gain in this world. Paul says false teachers say this, and now he begins to talk about wealth and those who want to be wealthy then in verse 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Oh, Paul's such a subtle debater. He only adds two words. He says, I agree with my opponents. Godliness is a great way of gain with contentment. Is godliness a way to get ahead in this world, as the false teachers say? Paul says, well, they're right to an extent, provided that godliness encompasses being content with what you have. So godliness is something that's positive and gets you ahead in this world. But it doesn't get you ahead if you're looking to get ahead. 
Isn't that great how he just turns his opponents, just doubles them over? He says, well, but of course, it isn't godliness if you aren't content with what you have. And so in the seventh verse, he now repeats the wisdom of Job. For we brought nothing into the world, for neither can we carry anything out. Real briefly, turn back in your Bibles to Job chapter 1. Look at verse 21. Job 1, 21. You all know the story of Job. I won't repeat that for you this morning. But this is at the beginning of Job's distress. In verse 20, Job arose and rent his robe and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. Jehovah gave, and Jehovah hath taken away. Blessed be the name of Jehovah. And in all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. And so Paul now reaches back to the wisdom of Job there. And he says, remember, we didn't bring anything into this world. And when we leave this world, we're not going to take anything with us. Material possessions are equally irrelevant at our entrance into this world as at our exit from this world. Now, if that's true, then what kind of value should you put on these material things while you're in the midst of this world? I mean, it just doesn't make sense to get highly committed to and orient your life toward earthly riches when earthly riches don't have anything to do with eternal values. And then verse 8 provides the definition of being content. But having food and covering, we shall be therewith content. Now, I can help you a little bit on this, but not much, because I know most of you are cringing. Either that or you're not listening. The word covering here in English makes it sound like only clothes. But in many cases, the Greek word is used for household covering as well, having a roof over your head, as we might put it in English. Okay, so I can make it a little bit easier. Paul says, having food and covering, meaning clothes and a roof over our head, we shall be there with content. But beyond that, what is beyond that? Well, it's all the goodies you and I want in life, isn't it? We are so blessed that I'll bet we don't even think, except on Thanksgiving when it is obligatory to do so, we don't even stop to say thank you for our clothes, thank you for our food, thank you for our house. We live the rest of our lives interested in all the other things. Or in the case of houses and clothes, better houses and better clothes, okay? And more toys, and more electronic gadgets, and more trips, and more luxuries, so forth. Now I've got some more good news for you. The Bible does not condemn all of that. Praise God, the Bible does not denounce riches, and it does not denounce enjoying this present world. Uh, I don't know that I could have said this previously, but I say it now. The Lord has blessed me with a new car this week, and I praise his name for that, and I'm going to enjoy it, and I'm not going to feel guilty about it. I'll tell you why, because you notice here, down a paragraph, Paul says... Um, in verse 17, in the charge to those who are wealthy, not to have their hope set on riches, but on God. And then he describes this God 
as the one who gives us richly all things to enjoy. God's not stingy. God doesn't want you to just kind of, you know, live at the poverty level even though you don't have to. Now, there are some Christians who think there's some piety in that. God doesn't. God gives us all things richly to enjoy. But he doesn't give them to us to become idols. He does not give them to us to become temptations and snares to drag us down and lead us away from the faith. He doesn't give them to us to stain our hearts and to turn away our affections. But that's the effect they have on us. And that's why, because before Paul gets to saying that, he first has to remind us that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Oh, you wouldn't believe the diversity of sins that come out of the desire to get ahead. Not because it's wrong to have money, not because it's wrong to enjoy this world, but it's wrong to set your heart on that and to not remember the place of Jehovah your God for the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. Don't you in my presence have any other commitment but to me. And God says, and if you're committed to me, I'll bless you and take care of you. You need to thank me for it. But you see, the problem is our hearts go outside of that. And we start looking in an earthly way to gain these things apart from our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul tells us, you want a test of your content, contentedness? Let us ask, would you be... Would you be equally happy if tomorrow you found out all you had left was enough food to eat that day in your clothing and a roof over your head? Maybe you didn't even own your house. You have a place, though, to sleep, and you have clothes to wear, maybe not even, you know, the nicest clothes, but if you had clothes and covering and food, would you be equally happy tomorrow? And let's face it, I can't say that I would. I know that I should in preparing this sermon. I've been trying to ask God to change and sanctify my heart, but I'll bet you're in the same situation. We all know that, that the, the answer is we should be, but if we had to take an index of where we really are, it would not be, yes. You couldn't say tomorrow. I mean, I wouldn't miss a beat spiritually. I'd be just as happy, just committed to God. I wouldn't complain in the slightest. Well, then you're not content. And if you're not content, you're not trusting the Lord. And your heart is really tied to something other than full-fledged allegiance to the Savior. Verses 9 and 10 issue a very strong warning to those whose aim in this world is controlled by grasping after becoming wealthy. But they that are minded to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare and many foolish and hurtful desires the kind that drowned men in destruction and perdition why is that well because the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil which some reaching after have been led astray from the faith there are some people who are so committed to getting money, they've given up their Christianity. And by the way, I don't think Paul here is talking about people who would openly say, oh, forget Christianity, I'm going for the big bucks. They're not people who think they've left the faith. They think they're Christians. They think that they are teachers who can tell us that godliness is a way of gain. 
These are people who profess with the loudest mouth that they belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, but they have lost it all. That's the kind of self-deception and self-destruction that we're talking about. Notice what he says, and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. They've inflicted this upon themselves. And the sorrow and despair of their lives is their own doing. They've not only given up real happiness in this world, they've given up their faith. And so I have to warn you. Is that why you don't tithe? Is it because you're so concerned about getting ahead? Making sure all the bills are paid and that you have those nice little luxuries? There isn't a person in this congregation, and I say this sympathetically to you as a pastor, I love you, I don't mean to slap you, there's not a person in this congregation who is not well enough taken care of by God that you couldn't tithe. You couldn't take 10% of what God gives you and say, thank you, God. I want to see your kingdom grow, and I want to acknowledge that everything I have comes from you. This tithe is yours. I suggest to you that if you cannot do that, and if you have not been doing that, and I don't know who you are, praise the Lord for that, but if you have not been doing that, your heart is not indexed to righteousness. It is not committed to Jesus. Paul said it. So that's the message to those who are hoping to get ahead in this world and forgetting their faith. But there's also a message to those who have pretty well gotten ahead in this world. Maybe this applies to all of us as well. It certainly applies to many in this congregation more than others, but it, I think it applies to all of us. Paul says in verse 17, charge them that are rich in this present world that they be not high-minded nor have their hopes set on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who gives us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good and that they be rich in good works that they be ready to distribute, willing to communicate. All of us enjoy more than the bare necessities of life. Remember, Paul says, if we have food and clothing, we have a covering, we'll be content with that. But all of us in this congregation enjoy more than that. All of us enjoy a choice of the food we eat, a choice of the clothes we wear. Many of us have a choice of the place that we live. We have much more than the bare necessities of life, and some of us enjoy far more than others of more than the bare necessities of life. Our increased income and our increased investments beyond those necessities with which we should be content, by the way, which are roughly the same for all of us, even those who drive more expensive cars. If you look at the full range, economic range of incomes and investments in this country, it's interesting to me, even those who live the wealthiest of lives, unless they have to eat off of, you know, gold-plated things and, uh, and have got to wear, uh, you know, just ridiculously expensive clothes and so forth, apart from that kind of lavish living, the percentage of what goes to food and clothing for most people is it's in the ballpark. We're all roughly the same. And so what happens to that money beyond that for any of us, beyond what is necessary to take care of our bare necessities? Our increased income and investments beyond those necessities show us just how wealthy we really are. And as I've already told you, there's good news. The Bible does not condemn your having these things. And it doesn't even condemn you enjoying them. 
There is no uh, monkish guilt trip here. You know, a vow of poverty if you really love the Lord. So you don't own anything. There's no Marxist guilt trip here. Where if you have too much, you're really oppressing the poor and you ought to feel guilty. Now there's no condemnation of wealth. There's no denunciation of it here. But there is a denunciation of wealth that is not tied to the proper attitude and disbursements. The Bible speaks very forthrightly and honestly here about our attitudes toward wealth and the way we actually distribute what we have. First of all, in verse 17, our attitudes. Paul says, Charge them that are rich in this present world that they not be high-minded, nor have their hope set on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Well, the two pitfalls, of course, of having money, pride on the one hand, being high-minded, of a lofty spirit. Do you think that, I mean, Marxists are wrong in their analysis, and those of you who know me, know my writings, know my comments, know that I have no sympathy for Marxism. I think it's not only immoral, I think it's philosophically shoddy. I don't agree with the Marxists. But why do the Marxists capture the hearts of people? Why is there that alienation? Why is there that resentment in those who do not have a lot of money? I want to suggest to you that the Marxists are not right, but the reason they've been able to capture people is because, in truth, those who are wealthy are high-minded individuals. They are proud individuals, and those who do not have what they do resent it. Now, of course, there's envy in the lower classes. We could turn this around and do an analysis. In a sense, Paul's already done that. You want to become wealthy, you better be careful. You don't drown yourself in sorrow. But the fact is that wealthy people sometimes are high-minded, oftentimes are high-minded and proud. And Paul says, beware of that, and also beware of depending upon your money. One of the wealthiest people that I have ever known, at least personally in my life, I worked for once. And this uh, elderly lady, who was a niece of Bertrand Russell, it turned out. She had a great holdings in Montecito and a wonderful estate. And I worked on this estate while I was a college student for her, got to know her fairly well. And though I appreciated her giving me work and so forth and her generosity, she was really a sight to behold in terms of her attitude toward money. Here she had so much, but she was the, it's like life all depended upon that money. She'd be scared. I mean, she wouldn't take a risk that I would take as a college student, you know, because when you have a lot, you have a lot to lose, don't you? Paul warns the wealthy, don't become so dependent upon these things that you're not really depending upon God. How many of us would say, well, you know, I could trust God a lot more if I just got this debt paid off? You know, I'd, be a, I'd have a lot freer attitude, a lot more trusting spirit if I could just do this or do that financially. Well, but you see, if you're really trusting in God, the financial situation wouldn't make any difference at all. It shouldn't. Because Paul tells the wealthy, you shouldn't be depending upon your wealth. You should be depending upon the Lord. So watch your attitudes. And then secondly, Paul says to the wealthy, look at your disbursements. Look how you distribute your money. The Puritans used to encourage people to keep very strict accounts of where their money went. And you say, oh, well, I do that. I've got a computer program. I know how much goes to my 
light bill, I know how much goes to my gasoline and so forth and so on. Well, if you do that, good. If you do that, good. But I'll bet you, if you're like me, that there is one category in that computer program that's just real flexible. <laughs> Discretionary money, right? Cash flow. What? What's that going to? What are you spending that money beyond your utilities and your house payment or your rent, whatever it is on? Where's that going? Well, the Puritans, they got a bad reputation for it, but the Puritans encouraged people to keep ledgers, to write it down. And then what you do at the end of the year is you add it all up and you do a little financial, and you say, oh my, 8% of my discretionary money went to Twinkies this year? Oh, you'd be shocked. Because, you see, every time we do that sort of thing, and I'm not against Twinkies, and I'm not against just spending money on yourself and being happy. You've heard me say that. But, you know, if we don't watch ourselves, you know, we do it here, and we do it there, and we do it, and we say, well, it's just a little bit, a little bit. It adds up. And so Paul says, not in terms of the detail that I've just referred to, he says, tell the rich in this world to look at how they spend their money. That they do good and be rich in good works, not simply rich in money, but rich in good works, that they be ready to distribute, willing to communicate. This is archaic English language, uh, but those of you who know realize what he's talking about is that they, you know, be open with their pocketbook. You know, it's not hard for them to take some money out and to spend it, especially when it comes to the matters of the Lord and his kingdom. He says, teach them to have an open wallet, to be ready to do that, to enjoy doing that. You know how the Lord loves a cheerful giver? Oh, it's so sad. When we sometimes, sometimes we do. We get large, generous offerings from individuals or gifts for special purposes and so forth. But it's so sad that sometimes people do that, and they're doing it really kind of watching you know, their right hand and their left hand, working this all out. They're really concerned, like, should I really do this? Rather than having this, boy, I'm just so eager to do this. This is fun. I love spending money this way. People are so greedy in our culture that we have game shows and radio shows and all sorts of things where what you get is a shopping spree, right? You get to, I guess it's not Neiman Marcus, but you get to go to Neiman Marcus and for 20 minutes take anything you can get your hands on. Boy, we'd love to do that. <laughs> or you're given all this money. Go to Hawaii and $1,000 spending cash. I said, oh, what can I do with $1,000? How many of us have ever gotten $1,000 ahead and said, what ministries can I support with this? That's what Paul's talking about, being ready to distribute, eager and happy and cheerful to be involved in the ministry of God's kingdom. Verse 19 adds, a real motivation for reforming our attitudes toward money and reforming our disbursements of our money. It says here, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on life which is life indeed. I love the way he puts that. Paul's not talking about buying your way into heaven. You know better than that. Read the epistle if you think he has any works righteousness, you know, tainting his words here. 
But what he's saying is if your heart's right with God, and this comes out in the way you spend your money and your attitudes toward money, you're laying up a real investment toward the future. Because where your heart is, there your treasure will be. And if your heart's in the kingdom of God, that's where you're going to collect your treasure, in the kingdom of God for all eternity. And he says, and in fact, they're going to lay hold on life, which is really life. Now, philosophers will like that because the Greek is ontos the ontological life, that which is truly, really life. You'll find it. Once you stop propping up your life with money and the things money can do, and you start showing by your actions that your heart really loves the Lord, and you show that in the spending of your money, then you're going to lay hold on life, the life that is really life. Then you're going to be happy. Pursue money, you won't be happy. Spend money, you will. But spend it on the right things. Spend it with the right attitude. And then you'll have real life. So do you want to start living today? Do you want to have that life which is life indeed? Do you want to see the kingdom of God prosper at the same time in this world? Along with you finding life that is really life? Then faithfully bring your tithes and your offerings. Learn to be rich in good works. Learn to show with the use of your earthly resources and money that your heart is above all tied to the kingdom of God and to the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. For as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what kind of grace he shows. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Amen.